If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn it to the book of Romans. We'll be continuing our study through the book of Romans. Uh, We are currently in Romans chapter 9. We'll be picking up in verse 14 in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use the Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans 9 on page 889 of that Bible. It is good to be back in Michigan. Um, I hope some of you realize that I was gone for a couple of weeks. Um, It's good to be on vacation with your family and and during that time to be reminded of certain things. Um, I I love spending time with my kids, and I was reminded this week that nothing, at least currently, do my kids love in me more than the fact that I'm getting old, Uh, whether it's the fact that I have gray hair and my beard. Um, No matter how many witty things I might say or how funny I think I am, Absolutely nothing makes my kids giggle like watching a man put sunscreen on his bald spot. That is, that is good stuff right there. There is nothing, no amusement park ride that we went on was quite as funny and quite as good as watching me have to smear screen on the big bald spot on the back of my head. Most importantly, though, it was good to realize that you all have absolutely no need of me. It is a good thing to be reminded of that. I was gone and life went on. I was gone and the word of God was preached. I was gone and God was praised and worshipped here and did so well. It's good to be reminded that this is not a task. I I don't bear the weight of this church on my shoulders. This is a privilege and an honor. It's good to be reminded of these things. I'm glad that we have elders. We have always had elders, and we currently have elders who are rightfully fit for this task, who can come up here and proclaim the word of God to you, whether it is me or whether it is Josh. We are blessed by those things. It's good to be back. I'm glad to be here. Although I will say that, as I told Brother Jeff this morning, I gave you guys one task while I was gone. It's still like 14 degrees out this morning. You failed miserably. I'm very upset with all of you. So cold here. Uh, you, you only had one thing to do, just warm it up. We're going to be gone for two weeks, and no, no. So we pick up where we left off, both being cold and miserable, but being inside and happy to read the Word of God. We pick up in Romans 9. What happens in Romans 9 is Paul is trying to explain why it is that the Jews have not responded the way that many people would have thought that they would have to the news of the gospel. The Messiah has come, the long-awaited Messiah has come, and they seem to have, to a man, rejected him. And this is especially important for Paul, because remember, this book is being written to the Romans as a way to elicit their help as he is going to Spain as a missionary. He wants to win more people to the Lord. So the question is, if this is the true gospel, if this is the real gospel, then why haven't the people who should have known it the best not responded to it? Part of Paul's answer, and it's just part, but it's an important part, is that to think of Israel as one nation chosen by God from the very foundations of the world, which Israel thought it was, is to misconstrue what election means. That just because Abraham and his children were to be counted as blessed doesn't mean that each and every one of Abraham's children was to be counted as blessed. This is why he goes to the point of picking out Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. Paul's point is easily summed up there in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong 
to Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel. The election of God, the choosing of God for those who would believe, who would fall in line with his promises and would receive the blessing that was promised to Abraham was not given ubiquitously to a nation, but was given over to the people of God as he saw fit. So God's apparent rejection of them was not really a change in his plan, but Paul here argues it's simply a continuation of his purpose of election. Now, as we come to our text today, as Paul has argued that that is kind of the reason behind it, it's not a new way that God relates to a, the world, but it's the same thing that he did in choosing Israel instead of choosing Egypt or instead of choosing the other Mesopotamian cultures. Paul has to then start to handle these sorts of objections. We come to a couple of them today. The issue of election is not an easy one. We believe that God has, in the doctrine of election, chosen individuals for salvation from the very foundation of the world as he talks about Jacob and Esau before they've done anything either good or bad, before you had any chance to show your worthiness to God or any chance to deny that worthiness. God chose you. Your name was written down in the Lamb's book of life to come to faith from the very foundations of the world. This elicits, elicits a number of questions in our hearts and problems in our understanding of the Bible and many things. We won't, by the way, clear those up today. Because Paul doesn't seem intent on clearing it up. He might answer a few of them, but not much. Nevertheless, I will insist that this is an important doctrine, and more than being important, it is helpful and it is good and so one of the things I want to do, the main idea behind our text today is simply to say that the election of God, of individuals to salvation, is good, and to speak of why it is good. Let us read Romans 9, verses 14 through 29. There Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of our God. Five brief things this morning to talk about why the election of God is good. First, election emphasizes the justice of God. Election emphasizes the justice of God. The question of whether God is unjust because of this doctrine is a fairly normal one. It stems from the very text itself. Paul has pulled or called two examples from the Old Testament. He talks about Jacob being called and not Esau. He talks about Isaac receiving the promise and not Ishmael. It's interesting as you read through the rest of Genesis what that implies. When you read Jewish scholars, Jewish scholars, when they come to this text, ancient Jewish scholars, were very quick to say, well, there is some sort of defining fault in Ishmael. There's some sort of some character flaw in Esau that means that they were removed from the blessing. But when you read through the text itself, there's hardly anything there. Ishmael has almost nothing bad written about him. Something happens at the weaning of Isaac that Sarah clearly got set off by, but we all know that Sarah has a hair trigger when it comes to Hagar and Ishmael to begin with, and otherwise, absolutely nothing wrong is said about Ishmael. Esau was indeed temperamental, explosive, and impulsive. But is this worse than the violence, sexual impropriety, and murderous tendencies of Jacob's sons? So the question comes down to the nature of those who have been chosen and those who haven't been chosen. You can look at Jacob. You can look at Abraham and Isaac. You can look at Paul himself, who said that he was the worst of sinners. You can look at that and say, well, God saves them. By Paul calling himself the worst, that implies, at the very least, if my logic works correctly, that there were people who were better than him. And yet God seems to jump over them to save the worst. There are people who seem to be more deserving. There are people who seem to be better. They're they're more moral. They're more devoted. They're more jealous for the things of God. They're more knowledgeable of the things of God. And yet God chooses others. Is this not unjust? Is it not unjust to save people who are worse and to let those who are better, by some sort of assessment, taste the fire? Is it unjust that God takes prostitutes and tax collectors, the sexually corrupt and traitors to the nation, ahead of Pharisees devoted to his word? This isn't a question born just out of Paul's imagination. I remember sitting in a Panera in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I was trying to figure out a sermon. I was working on something. I don't really know what I was working on at the time. It didn't matter. And there were, there were some old guys who were sitting back behind me, and they were scientists at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and I overheard some of the stuff they were saying, so I, I kind of piped in and wanted to talk to them. And it turned out that I was a pastor, and I got what I thought was going to happen was immediately this sort of visceral reaction to being a pastor in and, um, and Oak Ridge that sometimes for people who don't believe is even stronger than it is anywhere else. And I got an objection that I wasn't really ready for, 
this one gentleman had this really strong objection not to the resurrection, not to the miracles, not to the church. His strong objection was to the fact that God chose Israel. He said, I just don't understand that. He chose Israel. How many peoples were there in the world at that time? He didn't choose people from China or the sub-Indian continent. He, he didn't choose people from Africa or even from Europe or from North and South America. He had all of them to choose, but he pinpoints this one tiny group of people. How is that fair to anybody else? How is that fair to any of them? His whole point is that this seems holy and completely unjust. We need to know that this is a good question. But quite honestly, Scripture oftentimes doesn't answer the questions that we want it to answer. Paul seems to elude that question here. Remember the people that Paul is actually talking to. Because Paul is not talking to a gentleman who doesn't believe in the Word of God in a Panera. Paul is talking to people who already believe in God. Paul is talking to people who already think that the Old Testament are the Scriptures. Paul is talking to people who have some recognition of the fact that things are good because God says they're good, and things are evil because God says they're evil. Paul is not trying to make a system of thought work. He's not even trying to really clear up confusion, as important as those things might be. Rather, Paul simply says this, Yes, God can save people, who are worse than others. And yes, God can reject other people who seem to be better than them. And he does so precisely because it is his choice. He chooses. God cannot be unjust. He can't be unjust because God, doing what he wants to do, is always good. Because Christians and anyone who is connected with the Old Testament understands that good is not defined by our own conception of what is good. And just is not defined by what we consider to be just and right and true, but what God considers to be just and right and true. And so if God chooses people, regardless of whom he chooses or why he chooses them, if he chooses them, then it can't possibly be unjust. We must consider it good. For Paul, it seems like that is certainly enough. He brings up the question, and honestly, he just never seems to get around answering it. He simply says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, just like it says in the Old Testament. What Paul means by that is, it is God's good and pleasurable choice to have mercy on whom he will, and therefore to elect and choose whom he will. Therefore, it is, of course, just. Election emphasizes the justice of God. Secondly, election establishes the mercy of God. It's interesting that Paul begins to talk about justice and quickly turns from justice to talking about mercy, two different sides of a very large coin. I would say this, that without election, there is no basis for the fullness of God's mercy. There is no basis in this world for the fullness of God's mercy outside of election. For as the text itself says, it is God's choice to have mercy on whom he wants and to have mercy and to not have mercy on others. Or as he says later about 
Pharaoh to harden whomever he wills. I mean, if it wasn't that case, if it wasn't up to God, it would have to be up to some other condition, some other value that he finds in people. You would have to meet some sort of condition in order to receive the mercy of God. And then it wouldn't rely upon him. It wouldn't even be mercy. It would be like the work that Paul talked about back in chapter 4. No one gets a gift for things that he has worked for. If you get something for what you've worked for, if you earn something, that's called a wage. It's not called a gift. If you deserve mercy, it's not mercy that you're getting. It's justice. But this is mercy that he's talking about. To show this, he not only speaks to Moses, but then he says, not only does Scripture speak to Moses, but it also speaks to Pharaoh, the sort of leader and the pinnacle of believers in the Old Testament, and also perhaps the pinnacle of unbelievers in the Old Testament, Pharaoh. And it says the same thing to both of them. It's a nice balance. Why did, why did God destroy Egypt? Why did he destroy Pharaoh? And you, in asking that completely outside of any sort of context, would probably say things like, well, I mean, God had a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their children. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason why he pulls them out. But the question is, why does he destroy Egypt? I think that most of us, I think that I would say the same thing as almost all of you. Well, Pharaoh was an incredibly wicked bloke, right? I mean, he was, he was trying to kill off all of the Hebrew children, he was doing his best to not only enslave people, but make life hard and grueling and daunting on them. He was oppressing them in the most wicked of ways. He was evil and wicked. It's interesting then that when God comes around to speaking to Pharaoh, he doesn't say that to him. God doesn't look at Pharaoh and say, listen, Pharaoh, I need you to understand I'm going to crush you like an ant because you're a wicked person. And I'm going to take down all of your people with me. That's not what he says. He says this. This purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Think about what it means for God to say, for this reason I raised you up. It doesn't mean that he is just putting it up as an example. It means, I think, quite literally, well, okay, it doesn't mean it literally, but it means it quite figuratively, that God was the one who made Egypt great. So go back to Joseph, right? Go back to Joseph and think about what happens to Joseph. Joseph is sent to Egypt, eventually through machinations that are not terribly important to us. He finds himself in the service of the Pharaoh, and why? He finds himself in service of the Pharaoh because he can answer dreams, and Pharaoh has had a dream. Joseph interprets it for him. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. That's what's going to happen. Now, Egypt takes advantage of this because they know of the future. Just like if you were to go back to the year 2000, you would invest every cent you possibly could in Amazon and Google and Apple and all the rest, and you would then reap a huge reward. Well, Egypt basically knows what the future is. So they can hoard their surplus. And when everyone else is running out, who do they have to come to? To sell their livestock, to sell their land, to buy grain? It is only Egypt. God could have done that for the people of Israel in Canaan. But he took them down to Egypt. 
by his own good plan and knowledge so that Egypt might be built into this great power in the ancient world. So that 400 years later, God could come along and say, yes, you are a great power and now I'm going to crush you. The point of it is this. God's mercy didn't just happen in a moment. It was a long, planned, and structured mercy. But in the end, the point of the mercy was this, that God chooses whom to have mercy upon. Egypt was more powerful. Egypt was larger. Egypt was grander. Egypt had everything going for it. That God rejected them. This is exactly what he says in Deuteronomy when he's talking about Israel, don't get all uppity about me choosing you. Don't think that I chose you because you were the greatest of nations. And when he says that, he is distinctly charging them to not think of themselves as Egypt. I rejected Egypt and chose you simply because I chose you. It has nothing to do with who you are. I had mercy on you simply because I did, not because you deserved it, not because you've worked for it or striven the hardest for it, that it simply fell upon you because I chose it to fall upon you. Election establishes the mercy of God. Third, election exposes the authority of God. Nothing quite shows us the authority of God like the doctrine of election. Mentioning Pharaoh brings up an incredibly good example of the question that comes up in verse 19. Why does God still find fault? If it's been willed by God, if God himself has set in motion all of the events that are going to happen, then how can he fault us when we fall in line with what he has already decreed? So if, if God didn't choose me to have faith, how can he judge me for being faithless? It's a legitimate question. It's an excellent question. If we are all either elected to come into faith and to receive the promises of Abraham, or we are rejected before we've done anything right or wrong, how can God fault us for our position? Pharaoh is a really good example. Pharaoh actually shows an incredible softening of his heart time and time again. Ten plagues. After almost every one, during the middle of the plague, Pharaoh has to go back to Moses and say, I did bad. I would like you to pray to God to remove the plague. And then I, I, I will let you go. Almost every time, that's the repeating thing, the, the plague brings him to his knees, brings him to Moses, brings Moses to God, the plague ends, and then one of three things happens consistently. Sometimes all three things happen, sometimes one of the three things happens, but one of three things happens. The text tells us that either Pharaoh hardens his own heart, secondly, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, although we're not told exactly by whom, whether it was God or Pharaoh, it's just sort of a passive that's laid out there. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Or third, God himself is said to have hardened his heart. Listen to this passage at the end of Exodus chapter 9. When the, the plague of the hail and the, the thunder and the rain has come to an end, 
When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So incredibly explicit. Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart. His sin was hardening his heart. His heart was hardened by himself, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. That passive is clearly looking at the hardening that Pharaoh has done on his own heart. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell it in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Without hesitating, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. Literally two verses later, Moses, you need to know, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now you can, you can do all of the gymnastics that you want to, and some of it's good to try and explain how these things fit together, to try to explain how, how the will of God works on our will and how those things match together. You can go and read Luther's The Bondage of the Will. You can read The Freedom of the Will by Edwards. There's a, a lot of good books that talk about this from a Christian perspective, but what you need to know is that both things are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh did precisely what God wanted him to do, and Pharaoh did precisely what he wanted him to do what he himself wanted to do. The point is that Pharaoh doesn't get to escape the authority of God. Paul's answer here is so terribly clear in the book of Romans. Who are you to answer back to God? It's true. Election is, is true. Pharaoh, his heart is both hardened by himself and hardened by God. Does that mean because God is said to have hardened his heart at times that he is not responsible for what he did? Scripture says, no. He is always responsible for what he did. Who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to look at God and say, why did you, you have this thing happen? Why, why did it have to happen this way? God is God, whether you like him to be or not. You may question him if you want, but to be the creator gives him rights over the creation. This is seen in the metaphor that Paul uses. If you're given a piece of clay, the one who is forming it can form it however he wants to. In fifth grade, we would take those pieces of clay and we would mold them into a, a wide base with a very thin lip. This was a piece of art back in the late 80s that almost every fifth grader would made. We now know of as an ancient ashtray. And we would give it to our parents and it would be accepted and they would be happy. The more artful might make an elegant vase out of it. You can make it a little bit more functional so that it can hold oil or baking flour. You can do a number of different things with it. But at no point in time did the clay get to argue with you about what was happening. You have just as little right to argue with God about how he forms you and shapes you and makes you, about the decisions that God gets to make about election as that pot does to the potter. God has the right to make of us what he will. What Paul is doing here is focusing on the very nature of our sinfulness and our stubbornness before God. Let me ask what is sin? What is sin? In, in, in the most sort of synthesized way that you can speak of it, what is sin? 
It is in some way, shape, or form, it's, it's saying or living as though God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, does not have the authority to do what he wishes. Or somehow we have authority to deny his wishes. It is not for nothing that the entire fate of humanity was depicted in the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis by the eating of a fruit. What a little thing. What a minor and insignificant thing. Eve didn't rise up and try and murder Adam. Adam didn't abuse his wife. She ate a piece of fruit. What did they do? They knew the word of God. They knew the penalty for their rebellion. But they listened to the snake. They listened to their reason. Above all, the very pronouncement of the one who made them. They listened to the voices of others. They accepted the authority of their own minds. They accepted the authority of the snake and they rejected the authority of God and therefore death came for them. That is sin. To look at God and say, why has your authority chosen it to be like this? And to question it in your heart, whether it's legitimate or not, is nothing less, friends, than sin. It is to say that God does not have the authority to do what he wants to do. Nothing shows us the authority more than God's right to have authority over salvation. He does what he wishes to do. Election enriches the love of God. Paul mentioned above that election is at least the idea that not all Israel was Israel, meaning that while all of Israel entered into a notion of the covenant of the law with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while they, they entered into some of those promises and God watched over them and gave them some protection, certainly it was not a fullness of entering into the promises of Abraham. They did not get all that was coming to them. In Hebrews 3, we are reminded that because they rebelled against Moses and because they rebelled against God, that nation that came out of Egypt, the nation that saw these wondrous works of God performed, would not enter into the rest of God. They were to be rejected for their own rebellion. They were, after all, no better than Pharaoh and no better than the Egyptians. Yet, we understand that God must have known this. God must have known the people that he was saving. God must have known the people that he called out of Egypt. He must have known the people that he brought through the Red Sea. It didn't catch him by surprise that they made a golden calf. It didn't catch him by surprise that they, they clamored for meat and for water and for food. It didn't catch him by surprise that they grumbled and complained against Moses and against him, asking time and time again, oh, I wish that we could go back to Egypt where at least we had meat, which was just a dirty lie that they made up in their heads to make themselves feel better. God knew that. And he was patient with them all the same. This is what Paul says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order. God knew 
that not all Israel was Israel. He knew, as Isaiah is going to say later, that unless God had spared even a remnant of them, that they all were as good as Sodom and Gomorrah, that there wouldn't be a shred of them left. God knew that, and he put up with them. He put up with their stiff necks. He put up with their hard hearts. He put up with their idolatry. He put up with their murder. He put up with their sexual immorality. He put up with all of their, all of their flights of fancy, all of their dabblings in the world. He put up with all of it. Why? To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, so that you might be saved. God's love is seen in his great patience with all of those people who, who he knew would perish, who he knew would never enter into his rest, so that he might bring salvation on those whom he has called, not just from Israel, but also among the Gentiles. This is what love looks like. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all. God puts up with all of it. He puts up with the difficulty. He puts up with the stubbornness in order to show his election of you as lovely as possible. While we were on vacation, we had decent weather. I'm contractually obligated to say that. I've talked to several of you already. I can't say that we had disappointing weather when it was so cold here. So we'll just say we had decent weather while we were on vacation. It was, one might say, slightly cooler than expected. Now, being slightly cooler than expected, and February on the Atlantic coast, the water was also colder than one would like. My kids, however, have no conception of cold water at all. So any day that the sun even decided to come out, they were down at the water and typically dragging me with them. Now, I went, not of my own accord, but because my kids dragged me, and I won't make eye contact with a one of them right now. I went because my kids dragged me. Why? Because I was willing to put up with the freezing cold water, which I will fairly admit, I did more than my fair share of complaining about while I was in the water. They knew that I was putting up with it, but I did that. Why? Because I love my kids. I wouldn't have done it for any other reason. I'll tell you right now, I wouldn't have done it for you, and I wouldn't have done it for, for a number of other people in this room. You could have begged me, and I would have been like, you're on your own. My kids, okay, okay, let's do it. I did get a couple of reprieves, but not many. Not many. God puts up with Israel. He puts up with people who he knows will reject him. He draws them close to him. He gives them all of the blessings. He gives them all of his kindness. He gives them all of his riches so that they might taste of the fruit that he provides to them, even to let them reject it so that one day he can bring Jesus Christ and unleash his blessings on the wider world. His election shows how much he loves you. His election is a display of his patience and kindness waiting for you to be able to be placed under his protection and rich, rich love. Election enriches the love of God. Finally, election entails the plan of God. God continually in the Old Testament talks about this very idea that that he was going to bring in multitudes from the nations. He quotes Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call my beloved. 
It's almost like Paul is saying, listen, you might think that this is just kind of an easy way for me to blow off the fact that, that a lot of Jews are rejecting the gospel. You might say, well, we hear that this was supposed to be for the Jews, but the Jews have rejected it. If it was true, why wouldn't the Jews accept it? And then Paul comes back and he says, yeah, well, election. And you think, oh, Paul, Paul, you're just, that's convenient. You're really, really making that up right now, aren't you? That's a, that's a really, really easy way out of this kind of difficult problem. And Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not making this up. This is written in Scripture. This was always going to happen. It's not that I'm applying something to make my life easier. This is what Scripture says. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The idea here is God unleashes his grace onto the world, and it falls in line with his plan. His plans were always to do this. They didn't change. God didn't pivot when he saw that the Jews were not responding as he wanted them to, to the gospel, God didn't say, oh, well, Paul, now maybe I should call somebody to go out to the Gentiles. Maybe we can get more people involved in this because my people aren't really digging it. No, it's not what he says at all. He says, this was long foretold. This was part of the plan of God. Just as God sent Joseph down to Egypt to show his mercy to Israel over and against Egypt, so God has seen fit to give mercy to the people of the Gentiles. It is part of his plan. The election that God has of his people is an incredibly wonderful and helpful doctrine. We would be remiss, though, to end here and to not say that it can be misused and misapplied. While I I'm not always about making direct application out of every single text. I want to say at least a couple of things that we should leave remembering and considering and thinking about when it comes to election. First, this doctrine, as much as any other, ought to make you humble. I don't know why it is, but the most prideful Christians that I have ever met in my life happen to be Christians who believe incredibly strongly in Calvinism. I, I don't know if it's just God wanting to be ironic. I, I don't know if they don't understand the things that they're saying. But I kid you not, people who believe most fervently in election can be some of the most prideful people in the world. They look down on everyone else who doesn't think that they have the intellectual rigor to buy into election like they do. Dude, it was given to you. It's right there in the doctrine. We have no reason to ever be prideful at all. And even less so if you believe that God chose you and provided you everything that you needed for salvation. What in the world could you possibly be bragging about? What in the world could you possibly think yourself gifted and glorious in other than what God has freely given to you? It has nothing to do with us. If we were brought in by God, it is solely because of God's good choice of us, and it has nothing to do with anything that he saw in you or in me. God chooses the worst to bring in. He chooses some of the better to bring in, but it is God's choice to do so. Let us be humble. Secondly, let us remain optimistic. This doctrine should not sour our efforts at evangelism, but rather encourage us as we go out to evangelize people. We don't need to trick people into the faith. 
We don't, we don't need to do smoke and mirrors. We don't need to entertain them into the church. We don't need to do any of that stuff. We don't, we don't need to get them to say a very shallow prayer and then tell them that they're going to be okay and so we can notch another uh, part of our belt to say, that, hey, we, we got another one. We don't need to, to make a, a fake of it to try and emotionally manipulate people into coming in. On the other hand, we need to be warned that this doesn't mean that we get to simply be crass and just go out, look people in the face and say, turn or burn, loser. That, that also is not a helpful way to evangelize people. Just because God is sovereign over everything doesn't mean you get to be crass. What it means is that you are free to be gracious to people. Your work in evangelism is not to convert people. It's to be Christ-like. That's what it's about. Why should you be winsome and gracious and loving to people? Yeah, yeah to win them. Well, Paul clearly did things to win people. But he did things to win people because he wanted to be like Christ. He knew that it was left up to God. He knew that God was the one who would bring them in. He knew that God was the one who would call them. He knew that God was the one who was justifying them. Be optimistic, be kind, and be Christ-like. Lastly, our worship. God's glory is seen in the fact that he is the only sufficient source of our salvation. And he is a fully sufficient source of our salvation. It rests on absolutely nothing that we do. Now, that doesn't mean that there is not a response that we need to give. It doesn't mean that faith doesn't have to be present. It doesn't mean that God says, well, you're elect regardless of what you do, and I'm just going to move you over here and sit you here, and you can deny me your entire life, but I'm just going to pick you up out of hell anyway. That's clearly not what Scripture says. But your response in faith is a response to the work that God has already done. It is not what gets you saved. It is a remark that you are saved. God is the only and fully sufficient source of our salvation. People have asked throughout the history of the world, why did God become man? So when we talk about Christian belief, why did, why did God become man? Was there some other way that he could have saved humanity? People have given various answers to that over time. Some of them are more biblical than others. I'm pretty convinced that there is, there is a truly, I think a best biblical answer to this is simply this, so that God would be all in all. So that there would be no doubt as to whom your salvation comes to you by. God in the past had delivered his people by the staff of Moses he delivered people by the hands of the judges. He delivered his people by the sling of David. But when it came to giving them a full and final salvation, he and he alone would do it. He, bare God before you, enfleshed in human, human frailty. God himself taking on our weakness, taking on our sin. God himself, not an instrument of God, 
not a secondary object that God would use, but God himself taking it on so that there would be no doubt that your salvation has been wrought not by chariots and horses, not by a sling and a stone, not by a sharp sword, that your salvation was won for you by God. And nothing hammers that nail home finally like election. God chose you. God led you. God called you. God spoke to you. God enlivened you. It is not of us, but our salvation is holy and without exception a work completed and wrought by God in Christ. And that ought to make you worship him. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is to be called by you, to be loved by you, to be known by you through the work of Jesus Christ. We have no claims upon you. No heritage is good enough. No lineage is right enough. No work perfect enough. No conscience clean enough to look at you and claim that you owe us mercy or grace. It is only by your kind election of us that we know of your love at all. Let this fuel our worship, for in it your glory and love for us is seen most clearly. May our worship of you this day be true and rich for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, stand and sing with us our song of response. I stand amazed in the presence.